The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning. My name is Brian Lichty, and I serve here at the North Campus as the pastor for care and counseling. And uh, whether you are here in the sanctuary or joining us in the overflow or by live stream, we're so thankful that you're here. And I want to also extend a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and mothers-to-be who are here in this room. And thank you uh, for your service. Uh, Thank you for your many sacrifices among us. And thank you most importantly for uh, showing us uh, a little bit more about God and his great love for us. So thank you, mothers, and happy Mother's Day to you. Well, this morning we are going to be looking at the first half of Acts chapter 9. And you may have had a heading uh, over your text that says Saul's conversion. And I think that's a pretty apt title for this section of scripture. But it does lead to a very important question. What exactly is conversion? Well, the word conversion at its core means to turn or to turn to something. So whenever somebody experiences a conversion, there's a a change, typically in their thinking and their beliefs. There's a change and a turning in their direction of life. They were going a certain way, and now they're going another. So let's say for decades you were a card-carrying Democrat, but now you're a staunch Republican. Well, in that case, you've experienced a, a change in your thinking and beliefs about politics. There's been a conversion of sorts there, right? A turning of direction. Or, let's say like me, you grew up hating vegetables. In fact, you did everything you could to avoid them, but now you actually like them, at least most of them. Well, again, that means at some point you experienced a conversion. The way you eat and your flavor and your desire for vegetables has changed. There's been a conversion there. Well, of course, the most important conversion that we could ever experience is a conversion to Christ, a Christian conversion. That's where we turn from false gods to serve the one true and living God. That's where we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. And so as we look at our text this morning, we're going to explore Saul's conversion to Christ. We're going to see how he became a Christian and how he began to follow Jesus. And as we do that, we're going to notice some pretty unique things. We're going to see that he uh, was blinded. We're going to see that he heard an audible voice from heaven, and he was, saw this amazing kind of brilliant light. Some pretty unique things. But that's not ultimately where I want us to put our focus on this morning. Rather than focusing on all the differences between Saul's conversion and ours, I want us to focus on the similarities. And so this morning, I want to draw our attention to four noteworthy features of both Saul's conversion and ours. So first this morning, we see in verses 1 to 3 that Saul's conversion was the result of God's grace. Again, in verses 1 to 3, we see that Saul's conversion was the result of God's grace. Now, as you probably remember, this isn't the first mention of Saul in the book of Acts. 
We actually heard about him for the first time in chapter 7, when he was present for the stoning of Stephen. And we're told there in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, that as Stephen was being stoned, uh, those people laid their garments at Saul's feet. And in all likelihood, they did that because Saul was some kind of leader among them. And then in the very next verse, we read that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. So he agreed with Stephen being stoned. He was okay. He actually wanted him to be killed. And of course, we learn the reason why in chapter 8, verse 3, when we're told that Saul was ravaging the church and going from house to house. In other words, Saul didn't just have something against Stephen. He had something against all Christians, all who followed the way. He wanted to see them dead. He wanted to see them extinguished. And so he persecuted them. Young, old, men, women, it didn't matter. Saul was committed to persecuting the church. In fact, he was so committed to destroying and persecuting the church that he went from house to house seeking to imprison them. Well, as Saul's efforts began in Jerusalem, but they didn't stop there, did they? As believers fled Jerusalem from that persecution, Saul was determined to pursue them. He was determined to crush the threat of Christianity from expanding even further. In fact, we learn in our passage here in chapter 9 that Saul went on what was likely a month-long journey from Jerusalem to Damascus to do just that, to go and find more Christians and actually imprison them and bring them back to Jerusalem so they too could be persecuted. In order to accomplish his goal, he sought out authority from the high priest. And as far as you can tell, he was granted that authority. He received some kind of letters or extradition papers to accomplish his goal. So there was Saul en route to Damascus, seeking to destroy the church. As chapter 9, verse 1, our passage says, he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So make no mistake about it. Saul was rebelling against God, and he was an enemy of the church. And he was steeped and stuck in this sin. As one commentator said, his life was utterly wrong. He was a criminal before God. He was a callous, self-righteous, bigoted murderer set on full-scale inquisition. And believe it or not, Saul would eventually see himself the same way. In 1 Timothy 1, he would go on to describe himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. In fact, in that very passage, he described himself as the chief of sinners. So what did God do with this rebel? What did God do with this this persecutor, this chief of sinners? Well, look at verse 3. It says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. In other words, God intervened. That's what happened. God invaded Saul's life. He stopped him in his tracks. Heaven literally broke open to pursue the chief of sinners. So even though Saul resisted God, even though he opposed him, 
God graciously, graciously chose to intervene in Saul's life. He chose to invade Saul's life and change him forever. As we know from the rest of our text, that's exactly what happened. This gracious intervention, this gracious invasion led to Saul's conversion. So think about that for a second. In fact, uh, think about your conversion, Christian. Regardless of whether you grew up in a Christian home or not, uh, regardless of whether your past was maybe filled with really public sins or really private sins, uh, whether you were known for being really rebellious or maybe self-righteous, the same thing is actually true for you. Like Saul, you were once lost. Like Saul, you were opposed to God. Like Saul, you were going your own way. You had your own agenda apart from God. And yet, he graciously intervened. He invaded your life. He pursued you in your sinfulness. So even though you didn't deserve it, even though you didn't ask for it, even though there was nothing in you requiring it, God sovereignly, freely, and unconditionally poured out his grace on you. In other words, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. Brothers and sisters, those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ here in this room, you have something to rejoice in today. We all have something to rejoice in. Before you ever thought about moving towards God, he moved towards you. Before you ever loved God, he first loved you. He graciously, freely, sovereignly intervened and invaded your life and brought about your change to Christ. He turned your life around. And because of it, you will never, ever be the same. So like Saul, your conversion was the result of God's grace. Well, second this morning, in verses 4 to 9, Saul's conversion involves seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Again, in verses 4 through 9, Saul's conversion involves seeing Jesus for who he truly is. And of course, this happened in a pretty dramatic way, didn't it? As the heaven opened, uh, Saul encountered this glorious figure with bright and brilliant light all around him. And at that point, Saul didn't know who this was. But he did know whenever the heavens open like that and there's a bright light, you got to respond to that. In fact, you should humble yourself. And so he immediately fell to the ground. And as he fell to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul responded, Who are you, Lord? Now, when Saul used the word Lord there, it was really a term of respect rather than a confession of deity. At this point, Saul didn't understand who was speaking to him. And so he humbly and respectfully asked for this glorious figure to identify himself. And at that moment, the same voice responded back and said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, up until that point, Saul probably thought he was being a faithful Jew. He probably thought he was doing God a favor by persecuting Christians. He thought he was pleasing God that way. 
After all, in Saul's estimation, Jesus was a fraud. He was an imposter. Right? He wasn't the Messiah, even though he claimed to be. Not only that, he, he committed blasphemy. Right? He said he could forgive sinners. Only God can do that. And on top of everything else, Saul knew the law, and the law was clear. Anyone who hung on a tree was cursed. So again, in Saul's estimation, Jesus was nothing more than an imposter, a fraud. But when Jesus identified himself, Saul was confronted with an entirely new understanding of him. You see, Jesus wasn't dead. He was alive. And Jesus didn't ever commit blasphemy because he was the Son of God. And Jesus wasn't an imposter or a fraud or anything like that. He was the Messiah. He was God's anointed one who came to rescue sinners and who came to establish God's kingdom and who was now enthroned at the right hand of God. So the one that Saul saw in this vision was the glorified and resurrected Messiah. It was Jesus, the Christ. So all this time, Saul thought he was persecuting Christians. He was ultimately persecuting Jesus. After all, Jesus is so connected to his followers that when you persecute them, you persecute him. You know, three years ago when our uh, family moved here and I joined staff, I had a really hard time uh, learning names and keeping track of everyone. And so on more than one occasion, I would be in the hallway and I would say, Hi, Dave, only to find out it was John. And that didn't go so well, right? Um, it was awkward. It was embarrassing. And, and thankfully, um, everyone was very gracious and understanding. And, and, and again, the worst of it was that I was embarrassed. Well, it's one thing to be mistaken about another person's identity, but it's another thing altogether to be mistaken about Jesus's identity. As one person said, being mistaken about Jesus's identity is more than embarrassing. It's tragic. And the reality is, that's not just a mistake that Saul made. We as Christians, at one time, we all were confused about who Jesus was. We all had an inaccurate understanding of him. Some of us view Jesus as a historical figure, rather than the Son of God who literally came and took on flesh and dwelt among us. Others of us, I think, view Jesus as kind of a divine vending machine. You know, his sole purpose was just to meet all of our selfish desires and do whatever we wanted and come at our beck and call. And yet others of us view Jesus as kind of a ticket to heaven, right? So, uh, we wanted him to forgive us. We wanted eternal life, but we had no desire to obey him. We didn't want to serve Jesus as our Lord. So again, at one time, we all made that mistake. At one time, we all viewed Jesus incorrectly. But thankfully, and again by God's grace, he not only pursued us, he revealed to us who Jesus is. So even though none of us had Paul's exact Damascus Road experience, we too have learned about Jesus's true identity. Through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus living and dying and rising for sinners, we too have come to understand who Jesus is. Again, like Saul, 
Our conversion involves seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Well, notice what happened after Jesus identified himself to Saul. According to our passage, Jesus told Saul to get up and go to Damascus where he would receive further instructions. And that's exactly what he did. But as Saul stood up, he realized he was blind. Somehow that dramatic and brilliant encounter with Jesus had affected his physical sight. And so the men who were with him had to lead him to Damascus. And for the next three days, we're told Saul neither ate nor drank. Now, there could be a couple different reasons for this fasting uh, that took place over those three days. It's possible that Saul fasted as an act of repentance. That could have been one option. Another option is that he fasted as a means of preparing to hear this additional instruction from Jesus. So a fast of preparation, of consecration of sorts. We really have no way of knowing for sure, though. We also don't know what happened inside of Saul's heart during this time. Uh, But given what Saul says later in the writings uh, as the Apostle Paul, it's clear that this encounter, this brilliant encounter with Jesus, was pivotal in his conversion. So whether it was at the moment where he saw Jesus and heard him, or sometime during those three days, he became a Christian. At some point, Saul turned from his sin and trusted in Jesus. So in many ways, you could say that even though Saul was physically blind, during that time, he was seeing clearer than ever, right? With, with eyes of faith, he saw that Jesus was the glorified and resurrected Messiah, right? With eyes of faith, he, he understood, finally, Jesus is Savior. He's Lord, And he knew that he needed God's grace. He knew that the only way to be forgiven and the only way to live for God and to please him was to submit to and trust in this Jesus. And so let me ask those of you who are here this morning, maybe for the first time, or maybe you're watching online for the very first time. Maybe uh, you were invited to come here uh, by a Christian friend of yours. Maybe you're checking out this whole Christianity thing? Well, let me ask you a couple questions. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know who Jesus is? Have you considered the claims that Jesus makes about himself? Uh, Not only that, have have you taken any time to read the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels? There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, filled with testimony, filled with witness of his life and his death and his resurrection, all testifying to the same reality we've been talking about, that Jesus is God's Messiah. He's his anointed one who came to save and to seek the lost. So in other words, are you sure that you're not mistaken about who Jesus is? Again, it would be embarrassing for you to be mistaken about a random person's identity. It would be tragic, though, for you to be mistaken about Jesus' identity. So if you want to know more about Jesus, if you want to see him for who he truly is, I would love to be able to talk with you this morning. It would be my honor. If not me, someone else. This room has Christians 
filled with it from side to side, front to back, who would love to testify to Jesus. So all you need to do, just go up to one of us and say, who is this Jesus? And we'd love to tell you. Trust me, that's one of the most important questions you could ever ask and ever learn the answer to. Well, so far we've seen that Saul's conversion was the result of God's grace and that it involves seeing Jesus for who he truly is. The third thing we see in our passage this morning from verses 10 to 16 is that Saul's conversion led to a new calling. Again, in verses 10 to 16, Saul's conversion led to a new calling. And it's at this point in our passage that we're introduced to Ananias. And this Ananias, who's obviously not the one who died in chapter 5, appears not only here in chapter 9, but in verse 22. But really, we aren't told much about him. We're told in chapter 22 that he was a devout Jewish believer, but that's really it. So Ananias is not an apostle, and he wasn't appointed by the apostles. And yet, Jesus used this very ordinary, everyday disciple like you and I to accomplish his plan in Saul's life. And notice how that happened. According to verse 10, Jesus appeared to Ananias in some sort of vision. And Ananias, in a way almost reminiscent of Abraham and Moses and Isaiah and others, said, Here I am, Lord. In other words, Ananias was eager and ready to do whatever Jesus wanted him to do. That was until he found out who Jesus wanted him to go to, right? As soon as Jesus learned, I'm sorry, Ananias learned that Jesus wanted him to go visit Saul, he protested. And he said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So clearly, Ananias was no stranger to Saul. He had heard about him. He had heard about how he persecuted Christians in Jerusalem and beyond. And I imagine if we were in Ananias' sandals, we would have responded the exact same way. Right? Who, wants to, who wants to engage and minister to somebody that we know is hostile towards Christians? that we know is violent towards them. No one wants to do that. Well, thankfully, Jesus had something else to share with Ananias. And what Jesus shared not only brought Ananias assurance, it clarified the purpose that he was converting Saul, the the reason that he wanted him to go there. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Ananias, I understand why you're concerned, but but you've got to understand, I've been doing a work in Saul's life. He's a different person now. His his life has turned around. And now he's, he's one of us. In fact, I have a plan for his life. I've called him to go and spread the gospel and to to build up the church. In other words, Jesus made it very clear to Ananias that Saul's conversion led to a new calling. Instead of opposing the church, Saul would now be its advocate. Instead of speaking against Jesus, 
Saul would now be speaking for him. Instead of persecuting Christ and Christians, Saul would now be persecuted on their behalf. And of course, we see this this new calling of Saul, this amazing calling, unfold in the remainder of the book of Acts. It's where we see him sort of become the apostle to the Gentiles and plan all these churches and actually go on to write a significant portion of the New Testament. So God not only brought about a conversion in Saul's life, that conversion led to a new calling. And it was unique. There were unique aspects of Saul's calling. He was called to be an apostle. That was part of it. And yet, I want to encourage you that he's not the only one who received a new calling when he was converted to Christ. All of us who are Christians, all of us who've turned from our sin and trusted in Jesus, have received a new calling as part of our conversion. And this new calling that we've received actually has both general and specific aspects to it. Let me explain what I mean. In a general sense, we as Christians have been called to become like Jesus and to live for him, right? Our whole lives are to be occupied with those things. I want to become more like Christ, and I want to live for him. So we've all been called, for instance, to adopt Jesus' priorities, to love God and love others, right? We've all been called to uh, embrace Jesus' command to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. We've also all been called to participate in Jesus' mission, right? The Great Commission to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So every Christian shares in that general call. That's something they received during their conversion. But there are also times in our lives when God calls us to do something more specific, something in light of the unique personalities and spiritual gifts and opportunities that he's given to us. So if you're a college student here this morning, and maybe you're planning this fall to to, to be back at the dorms, well, well, maybe God's calling you to lead a Bible study in the fall. Maybe he's calling you to, to serve your peers as an RA. Or maybe... Uh, You're a parent here this morning who has signed up their children for soccer or some sort of sport over the summer. Well, maybe God's calling you to take that time during practices to get to know the rest of the parents and to start befriending some of them. Maybe that's his specific calling for you at this specific time in your life. Or maybe you're a senior saint here this morning uh, with grandchildren, and God is calling you to disciple one of them. Or or maybe just get on FaceTime with them once a week and pray over them. Now, some of you may be thinking, I I hear you, Pastor Brian, but I'm not so sure God would call me to something like that. After all, you you don't know about my past. Or, I'm just a new Christian. Or, I just don't feel qualified to do anything like that. Well, join the rest of us. Honestly, join the rest of us. As Christians, we are all broken people, myself included. And God loves to use broken people to accomplish his purposes. In fact, he's graciously chosen us to accomplish his kingdom purposes. As author and pastor Tim Chester reminds us, Noah was a drunkard. Jacob was a cheat. Moses was a murderer. 
Gideon was a coward. David was an adulterer. Jeremiah was a depressive. Matthew was a traitor. James and John were hotheads. Simon the Zealot was a terrorist. Peter was all talk. And Saul was a persecutor of the church of God. So brothers and sisters, God loves to use broken people. He, he has a habit, actually, of choosing the, the weak and the foolish and the low and despised of this world to accomplish his work. So it doesn't matter what your past looks like. It doesn't matter if you're new to the faith. It doesn't matter if you feel qualified. God has a purpose for your life. He wants to use you. He wants to spread the gospel through you and build up his church through you. He has not just a general call in your life, but specific callings for you to pursue. As Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So walk in those good works that God's prepared you to do. Embrace not just the general calling, but the specific calling that God has on your life. All right, well, so far this morning, we've seen that Saul's conversion was an act of God's grace. And it also involves seeing Jesus for who he truly is. And also we saw that Saul's conversion led to a new calling. Well, fourth and finally this morning, in verses 17 to 19, we see that Saul's conversion required the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. The first thing we notice in these verses is that Ananias obeyed Jesus, right? As soon as he understood why he was supposed to go there, what Saul was, uh, how Saul was part of God's plan, he went. He obeyed Jesus. He quickly turned around and no longer protested. And so he departed to the street called Straight and entered the house of Judas, and that's where he found Saul. And when he found Saul, he laid his hands on him. And the first thing he said was, Brother Saul. And I think those words are significant. They're significant for a couple reasons. One, it's because I think it it reveals uh, that Ananias not just obeyed Jesus, but he trusted him. So when Jesus said, uh, he's a changed man, he's my chosen instrument, Ananias took him at his word. Okay, I trust you. I'll go. I'll even put my hands on him. So he trusted him so much that he welcomed him as a brother in Christ. I think the second thing why it's significant is because it it shows Saul's inclusion kind of into the church. He was now in fellowship with other believers. He was being welcomed and accepted by the body of Christ. What an amazing thing to hear. You were once a persecutor, and now you're hearing, Brother Saul? I'm your brother? We're in the same family? It's amazing. Well, as Ananias laid his hands on Saul, God did two things. In fact, you could say he performed two miracles. He recovered Saul's sight, and he filled him with the Holy Spirit. And according to verse 18, as soon as that happened, Saul regained his sight. And then shortly after, he went on to experience water baptism. And then just a few days later, he began preaching that Jesus was the Son of God. So at this point, Saul's conversion was complete. His thinking was changed. His beliefs were changed. His life was turned around. 
So he no longer lived for himself. By God's grace, he now lived for Jesus. Well, as we reflect on these verses, I think it's important for us to remember that in the book of Acts, uh, there's often more description than there is prescription. In other words, the book of Acts was designed to give us an account of what took place, not necessarily instructions to follow. It was designed to give us uh, kind of a, a unique picture into how the gospel was advancing during this time, not really set a precedent for all of time. In fact, let me get a little bit more specific. Let's think for just a second about some of the very things that happened to Saul and consider whether they're descriptive or prescriptive. So we know that Saul's conversion took place over three days. Was that descriptive or prescriptive? Well, I would say that's descriptive. Um, After all, to my knowledge, there's no place in the New Testament where we're ever given a timetable for conversion. All right, well, what about Saul receiving physical healing during his conversion? Is that descriptive or prescriptive? Is something just kind of describing what happened, or is it actually saying this should happen? This should be normative for every conversion? Well, again, I would say based on the reading of the New Testament, though this does happen at times for people during conversion, there's no clear pattern. There's no clear command saying this must happen. This is required. This should happen. So it's descriptive. All right, what about Saul receiving the Spirit during his conversion? Was that prescriptive or descriptive? Well, I would say the way or the manner by which Saul was receiving the Spirit was descriptive. So he received the Spirit through the laying on of hands. And that does happen in a couple other places in the book of Acts. But there are actually just as many examples in the book of Acts where people receive the Spirit apart from the laying on of hands, such as at Pentecost. So again, the way that Saul received the Spirit was descriptive. That said, I do believe receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit during conversion is prescriptive. In other words, that is something that happens for every single believer. As 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In other words, every single person who is converted to Christ receives the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. But why? Why did Saul need the Holy Spirit to fill him? Why do we need the Holy Spirit to come fill us at our conversion? Think about it this way. Can you imagine a a doctor uh, practicing medicine without the ability to prescribe medication? Can you imagine a firefighter trying to put out a fire without access to water? Can you imagine a a missionary going and trying to evangelize in, in another country without learning the language? No, you can't, because they wouldn't be able to be who they're supposed to be or do what they're supposed to do without those things. They need those gifts. They need those abilities to be who they're supposed to be and do what they're supposed to do. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit is necessary for us as Christians. We need him to come into our lives at our conversion to do what we're called to do and to even become a Christian 
Like Saul, we need the Holy Spirit dwelling within us and empowering us to live the Christian life. And in many ways, this goes back to one of our key verses in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples gathered there in Jerusalem? Uh, They had asked him, uh, was it time now to restore the kingdom of God? And here's how he responded. He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So brothers and sisters, hear me loud and clear on this. You have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling within you. You do. It was necessary. It was part of your conversion experience. He's the one who did a work in your heart to help you see your sin and turn to Jesus. And he's the one who continues to do a work in your heart to help you become more like Jesus and serve as his witness. And so as you go from here this morning and you think about all that God has done in your conversion and all that God has called you to, don't forget about the Holy Spirit. He's with you. He's your helper, and he will give you everything you need to follow Jesus and be his witness. Amen? Let's pray. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope and no place to begin, your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. Oh, Father, that is our testimony this morning. And that's our testimony solely because you are a good and gracious God. Thank you, Father, for invading our life. Thank you for revealing who Jesus truly is. Thank you for giving us a new calling. And thank you for filling us with your Holy Spirit. Oh, God, would you receive our praise as we sing to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.